Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Our coverage now continues with the strong Laura Coates and the mighty Allison Camerata <laughs> as I head off on this thirsty Thursday to do what I do best. Drink. Sitting at my kitchen table and drink. Yes. God, God, I know you so well. Um, I, Laura, I feel like we're going to have to really step it up with the superlatives. For I Jake. mean, I, I lifted his car one time. Now I'm strong. One time this, I carried your car. There's, it's, there's no, there's no, I don't need a superlative. I'm just, you know. Okay. All right. He said, I don't need, he said a, I don't need, I don't need hype girls. Home to drink. All right. I don't okay. need hype girls. You're I'm right. Good. Okay. You're just well, you. Then, All right. Well, go. Then, poof, you have no power here. Goodbye. Have fun nice with your bourbon. You. We'll see you later. <laughs> good to see you, ladies. You too. Everyone, we're keeping the conversation going tonight. Apparently, I'm strong and you're mighty. I love that. Good evening, everyone. I'm Laura Coates in Washington, D.C. And I'm Allison Camerata in New York, and this is CNN Tonight. So we're here with our panelists from across the political spectrum. One team here with me. And the other team, the, the right one, in Washington, D.C., here with me. And Allison, we're going to get started with a we'll look at two key states that people really have heard a lot about and one that we haven't been hearing enough about, and frankly, it's been flying under the radar, but it's a still a very, very important race. I'm talking, of course, about North Carolina. Okay, so you'll handle that one. I'll take Georgia. So let me bring in our panelists right now, and we'll start there. We have former Democratic presidential candidate Andrew Yang here, also former Trump White House communications director Alyssa Farrah Griffin, and CNN political analyst Natasha Alford. Great to have you guys here. Okay, so let's start in Georgia with um, Herschel Walker and Senator Warnock. So only now, right now, is Senator Warnock spotlighting Herschel Walker's problematic past and... Uh, I guess, record or whatever he has said about abortion. So here is the new ad that Senator um, Warnock is now airing. Herschel Walker wants to ban abortion. There's no exception in my mind. I can say I believe in life. There's not a national ban on abortion right now, and I think that's a problem. But for himself? Herschel Walker paid for an abortion for his then-girlfriend. She supported her claims with a $575 receipt. Um, Andrew, you've run for president. Did Senator Warnock miss a window of opportunity when he could have been hitting him with this earlier? Well, I, I think their campaign thought that it was in the news so much that the ads wouldn't really break through. And now they're using the ads to push the message now that it's possible the press don't cover the story quite as actively. It's a smart move because if you look at the polling, abortion and women's reproductive rights is perhaps Democrats' biggest advantage in Georgia and other races. Alyssa, do you think it's a smart move how he's doing it now, the timing? Yeah, I think he's trying to leave nothing on the table. Um, They're neck and neck. And surprisingly, after the Herschel Walker reporting came out, he had the biggest fundraising period that he had yet in his campaign. So I think the Warnock folks recalibrated and said, you know, we do need to wade into this. We can't let it get out of the headlines. This race is going to be neck and neck, which I can't believe I'm saying. Um, But I still do expect, I mean, Governor Kemp in the gubernatorial race is outperforming Stacey Abrams. And Stacey Abrams has run more on abortion and these issues. Warnock's been prudent and really focusing on the economy, on Democrats' accomplishments, as he would and he was frame, would frame them like the Inflation Reduction Act. So last minute he's wading into this. I think it's smart to leave nothing on the table. And this 
this is going to be a close race. Do you think that he missed an opportunity? I felt that in the debate that he didn't hit um, Herschel Walker as hard as he could have. He sort of pivoted away to his own policy about abortion instead of saying, you know, who, who knows what you did, but we know that you have um, not been, we know you've been an absentee father. We know you haven't been around for at least three of your children. Yeah, I think to be completely real, a lot of us were watching and saying, say more, right? He was definitely taking the, uh, you know, higher ground Michelle Obama approach. This is a pastor. You know, he's being very respectful. Uh, but by not being direct, it made it seem as if Herschel Walker was more authentic, more genuine, uh, more of an advocate uh, in this way, even though he hasn't really said much about his policies or what he he's really going to do. Um, I don't think the window is closed, but I do think that that gap that we saw at the debate had to uh, initiate some sort of action after. Well, I think to your point, Reverend Warnock is more comfortable being a positive messenger. And so when the campaign puts out ads, it's not necessarily the reverend standing there lambasting someone who's standing just six feet away. And if you want to hear about Georgia, I think that this race is going to wind up in a runoff a, a couple of months from now because you need 50 percent or more to, to win outright. And there's a third libertarian candidate who's pulling it around 4 percent. So Georgia might be the focus of the political world for a, a number of weeks after. And, and Walker has the benefit, by the way, of Kemp probably boosting him for people who b- vote down ballots. So that's helping him also stay afloat at this point. OK, let's look what, at what's happening in Pennsylvania. So President Biden went there today and Traveled around Pittsburgh, basically, went to Permonte Brothers, best sandwiches ever, um, with John Fetterman, lieutenant governor. So I think we have some video of that. But, but they weren't on the they weren't like on the at a campaign rally together. Andrew, um, which what do you call this? Quiet campaigning? Uh, it's a meet and greet. It's a restaurant stop. It's a man <laughs> of the people, casual sit down. It's a chance to eat a delicious sandwich with French fries wedged into the sandwich itself. Uh, but but I, I think this is a win for both candidates. Uh, I mean, the fact is there are a number of Democrats who have not been willing to appear with the president in a rally or otherwise. And that's going to be one of the closest races. It's closer now than it was a, a number of days ago between Fetterman and Dr. Oz. Does it help um, Fetterman? To have Biden there. Uh, oh, absolutely. Um, you know, his policies are still very popular, right? Uh, this idea of infrastructure, a bridge is very safe. <laughs> you know, he's, he's elevating something that affects you, whether you live in a red state or a blue state or whatever your, your leanings are. Um, so I think that there's still a positive boost from Biden. But again, Fetterman's not taking it all the way. It's like having that girlfriend or boyfriend you really quickly introduced to the parents, <laughs> but like you're not really inviting them over for dinner, you know? Well, and it's Pennsylvania, which I would argue is probably where Biden plays best other than Delaware. But there's a reason he's not getting called down to some of these other competitive races. And instead, Pete Buttigieg, the first lady, are getting called in. So I, it makes sense in Pennsylvania, but not really elsewhere. He took umbrage today, President Biden, and said, oh, yes, I am being called lots of places. Right. I just <laughs> got 16 to 18 right. calls just today. So he was trying to clarify the record on that and show how in demand he is. Okay, panelists, thank you very much. Okay, Laura, tell us about the states that you're covering. Well, we know, first of all, I just love the idea of him taking umbrage to that very point. I know everyone's calling me, but here at the table here in D.C., we've got senior political commentator Scott Jennings, Democratic strategist Soshi Hinoosa, and CNN political commentator David Swerdlick. And we've been kind of champing at the bit here. We're going to touch on a lot of these, but I want to start with North Carolina, because speaking of the attention, it's all gone to places like Georgia and Pennsylvania and obviously other places. But North Carolina presents an opportunity as well. And you and I were talking earlier, Scott, and you were like, Laura, that's done. Put a fork in it. Why do you think so? I mean, it's a very, they're neck and neck. Mm. You've got a former North Carolina state Supreme Court justice. 
you've got a congressman, but they're in a dead heat and not a lot of attention or money pouring in. Well, the last couple of polls out in North Carolina have Ted Budd, the Republican, uh, pulling ahead. Republicans have felt pretty good about this race uh, because the national winds appear to be blowing uh, in the Republicans' direction. Ted Budd hasn't done anything super controversial. Uh, and the new standard? Uh, hey, in a, in, a, in, a <laughs> yes. state, in a state where the generic environment favors a Republican and you happen to present yourself as a generic Republican, that's going to be just fine. And so I think if Democrats are putting their eggs in the North Carolina basket to save the Senate, uh, that'll be a bit of a stretch. But early voting just started today. And the thing is, why not look at that state as well? I mean, is there too much attention going on the other states? You're shaking your head. Do you agree? Well, I think it's absolutely an opportunity for Democrats. And it's they want, they're trying to expand their map. Yes, they're trying to protect a number of seats. Um, but at the same time, they're looking for opportunities to ensure that they you know, can expand that map. What I will say about Sherry Beasley is she's a strong candidate. Mm-hmm. Not only that, the money that is pouring into this rate, you might have more money pouring into Pennsylvania and Georgia and Nevada and other places where you do have Republicans that are a little, you know, uh, they're, you know, they're, they've been problematic. <laughs> I don't yeah. know. I'm really yeah. trying to find a PC right. way to put it. Um, but, but she is raising money and she is widening the fundraising gap, which is important in the final weeks because she can spend that money on television. She can spend that money to turn out voters and with all of these races, all of these races are going to be close, and it's going to be a turnout game. So mm. that's critical for her um, in order to remain, um, you know, at the at the top there. I mean, I'm surprised as, as somebody who could be the first black woman senator um, out of North Carolina that you're not hearing more about just from the just from that perspective. On one hand, and the qualifications, you want to say something? No, that no, exactly. That's the thing. You're not hearing more. Uh, North Carolina is my home state. I'm watching this race with interest. I think Beasley has run a fine race, but not a race that has yet compelled voters to come out. And that's why I think Ted Budd is a little bit ahead. Um, Democrats have not won a Senate race in North Carolina since 2008, when Barack Obama was on the ballot for president. And I think the challenge, North Carolina, for Democrats is to really focus people's attention on this. Uh, She's been elected as a judge a race that flies under the radar, a Senate race is a different thing. Well, I'll tell you, I mean, first of all, North Carolina, you're you're okay with me because my mom's state from Fayetteville. She calls it God's country. We'll see if it actually is the midterm country or not. But, you know, I want to go back to Georgia for a second Mm. because I know the other panel was talking about Georgia and they played the ad from Raphael, Senator Raphael Warnock. But there was a different ad that was playing today and it was Herschel Walker with somebody, well, Georgia knows quite well. It's Vince Dooley was a part of this and he is a, well, legendary coach. Here it is. He is not a, quote, politician. There is a need in this country. There is need in this state for somebody like Herschel. Knowing him, the character that he has, he will make a great United States senator. So, Scott, bring this home as to why you thought this was such an interesting notion. Because you have Warnock having, well... A negative ad, mm-hmm. and you've got this one. Yeah, Warnock closing negative and Walker closing positive tells me a lot about how each strategist views the state of their campaigns. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, Herschel Walker's had 50-plus million dollars of negative ads run against him, largely on the issue of character. And so rolling out Vince Dooley, who's a revered figure in Georgia, uh, to repel that struck me as a smart idea. The fact that Warnock went negative on abortion after demurring on this topic uh, for a few weeks tells me they're nervous. Uh, also, well, I do, he went I, negative on the scandal. Well, I know, right. but but he but for the last several days, weeks that this thing has been unrolling, he has not wanted to touch it. I would also just point out on all the national polling that's come out, 
in the last several days. Abortion falling down the list of priorities for voters, things going up, inflation, economy. And so the fact that Warnock's closing on abortion at a time when it's fading, I think is telling. You know, Allison, when I think about that and the idea of of what's coming up and who goes what and who closes where, I wonder if you're thinking the same thoughts that Scott and I was articulating earlier and Sochi and, and Dave as well about the idea of what the ads and the timing of it is really telling you about how the campaign see their chances. Well, definitely. Yes. I mean, as the panel here said, uh, it was time for Senator Warnock to put out an ad. Um, but what Andrew Yang just told me is that you and I are completely missing the story in terms mm. of where we should be focused. He thinks we should be focusing on Utah and the race between <sighs> Mike Lee and Evan McMullen. He says that's the stealth race that we should all be paying attention to. Well, you know, that's a fascinating one. And we have covered Andrew. Have you been listening to our show every single day? Yeah, have you been on? I don't think you have. But, yeah. I, but I that's, know that's, that's okay. I know you're all over that's it, okay. <laughs> I know. I'm just letting you know. But, you know, the reason it's a fascinating race, and you pointed out, is because it is a state that they have a Republican candidate and an independent, and the Democrats opted not to actually have a Democratic candidate because it may not have had a chance to win. I think it's a fascinating notion. But as we talked about, I don't think if you're trying to retain control of the Senate that you kind of let anything go for granted. Mm. That's part of the problem of politics, always thinking, you, what is the phrase, you count your chickens before they hatch? Hmm. All right. I well, went farm on you. Yeah, no, I didn't expect it. I'm processing that. Yes. But I mean, look, we're covering all of these things because they're all really interesting in their own mm. way. OK, so coming up, we have this Washington Post analysis that finds that nearly 300 election deniers are on the ballot in the midterm. So next up, we have more with our battleground voter panel and their thoughts on the deniers. Our Pulse of the People is next. Time now for part two of our Pulse of the People. We assembled a group of Republicans and Democrats from battleground states to see how they feel about the state of democracy before the midterms and what they think of so many election deniers running in their home states. All of you are in states that have election deniers on the ballot. In Arizona, Amy, in your case, they're up and down the ballot. It's a real issue because it's not just rhetoric. The Republican leadership in our state, you know, entertained a year long audit with absolutely zero evidence. And the state attorney general, who is a Republican, came forth a few days ago and said there was no evidence provided to justify that entire audit and this whole notion of election fraud in Arizona. And even still, Arizona put forth a group of fake state electors to interfere with the legal transfer of power and the counting of electoral votes on January 6th. So it's not just talk. Our Republican leadership in our state actually took concrete measures to interfere with the electoral college count. And that is a a problem not only for fair and free elections in Arizona, but for our democracy as a country. I hope and pray that we can just come together, understand that um, people are being elected. Some people are not going to be elected. We move on. We focus on the issues of the country. We focus on the issues at hand for our schools, for our families and for our our economy. Show of hands, how many of you are concerned about the election deniers on the ballot? Okay, so three of you. It is really reckless to ignore the facts and, and spread rhetoric. It's an abuse of power when you know that you have a large following of people who will, you know, take your cues and advance 
something that you know is based in an alternate state of reality. We're in trouble. Whether we're talking about Carrie Lake, Mark Fincham, you know, Secretary of State and Governor candidates, we have people who not only said that they would not have certified President Biden's election here, they have said that Carrie Lake just this past weekend made the comment that um, she would certify the election if she won. And she refused to say that if she didn't win, she would respect the, the um, voice of the voters. Lydia, why are you not concerned? Democrats haven't accepted an election since 1988. How am I supposed to um, look at the news in 2016 and be told that this election was a fraud, was hijacked, was uh, Russian collusion, was irredeemably corrupt? And then four years later, I'm supposed to just accept the 2020 election was uh, safe and fair. And, and it, it, it's ludicrous. I hear what you're saying. There's often questions about what went into voting, but not to this level. When it was Gore versus Bush, at some point, the adjudication was done. The country accepted that it was George Bush. I mean, the best person that put this put this perfectly um, said that you can run the best campaign, um, you can become the nominee, and you can still have the election stolen. And that was said by Hillary Clinton in 2019. It makes me think that you can have a point to question an election, right? For me, so Mastriano, as you all know, in Pennsylvania was at January 6th, major election denier. And as a young Republican, I don't want to be in a Republican party that is run by people who denied the election. There was no evidence of fraud. There was no evidence that the election did not have integrity. You know, I I think we can all agree we want our elections to be free, fair, and accurate. We want to trust the election. And how can we do that when, I, you know, you're telling me in 2016 that Trump is an illegitimate president, and then suddenly the same processes used in 2020 are, are amplified, mail-in ballots, signature verifications were turned down. Arizona has had mail-in, bounding, mail-in ballots for a, quite some time, and Republicans have maintained control in our state you know, for for decades. And there has never been an issue with the integrity of mail-in voting until they lost the presidential election in the state. This, as I said, has been adjudicated. There were something like 86 judges across the country, some of them Trump appointed. Do you do you still think that there was fraud in the 2020 election? In anything that involves humans, there, there will be fraud. And any election, it will show that it's really hard to catch fraud. I really, truly believe there was a lot of fraud. I I don't understand how a large portion of the country has lost the ability to just look at information and process data and understand. I think at the end of the day, it's important that we we stop using, you know, TikTok and Facebook as our personal research tools to figure out what happened. I was volunteering with the GOP here in Nevada, and I saw a lot of fraud. There were a lot of provisional ballots, which means that these ballots were casted, even though it shows there was some type of issue with the ballot. We found so many people that had already passed away, but their grandson voted for them. How many people did you find that their grandsons were voting for them who had passed away? Um, so that was just one. That was one example. Um, there was a couple of examples of family members that did vote for um, elderly or deceased family. Um, I don't, I'm not aware of those numbers, but there was 80,000 provisional ballots that were taken to the Nevada Secretary of the State. I just wanted to share that Mail-in ballots have historically have had a lot of integrity. There's no fraud. There's no documented fraud. There was no documented fraud in 2020. 
And as you said, many Trump appointed lawmakers saw all the evidence, all the evidence, and found no evidence that this election was fraudulent. And I think for the Republican Party to move forward, this is an undeniable fact that we all need to accept. Our party looks weak. Our party looks stupid. Our party looks like we can't function if we can't accept this election. And we need to instead support candidates, unlike Trump, who are going to be more inclusive, able to accept facts. I have faith in our system and our democracy that that will continue. But I am also hopeful that as we get new leaders in position, that we will put new policies, new laws in place that will prevent this from reoccurring in the future. I want to see Republican leaders who accept a fair election that we lost and realize that this is a turning point and it should be a turning point for us to have better candidates and not let extremist divisive rhetoric like rhetoric like that of Trump become the face of our party again. And it should be a moment that we reflect on and that we know it's a time for change in the party. So interesting, Allison. Really, I think about how much they're really thinking broadly about democracy. And I know that there's the thought that it's not so tangible. It seems very esoteric, like you're in a classroom. But they're really thinking about what this means for all the other issues. I think that's fascinating. Well, not only that. I mean, so Chloe, right there in the middle on the bottom row, Mm -hmm. I mean, she's a college student. She gives me hope, as do my own children, for the next generation. I mean, thoughtful, critical thinking analytical, has a vision for what she wants her party, which is Republican, to look like in the future. And then Lydia, who was on the right bottom corner, she really, um, her perspective did sort of open my eyes to how, basically what she's saying is, how can Democrats have had all of these doubts and all of these problems with the 2016 election and then have not a single problem with the 2020 Mm -hmm. election? I thought that that was really interesting and eye-opening. You know, I wonder if that really is you, it's true to think that interesting um, point she made. But I do wonder if that's an epiphany that others are having or a thought about it. Or really, is it a, a way of trying to come to it in a backward looking way of saying, look, OK, well, then if that's your issue, how about that? I wonder if it's a sophisticated type of whataboutism. I, I don't know the answer, but I think it was very, very thought provoking, as is, as you mentioned, the college student. Remember, I think she was the one in our um, discussion yesterday she was going to do this, the ticket splitting, right? She could not vote for someone in her own party because of the views on abortion. I wonder, similarly, if Lydia will have those views as it relates to those who did not have anything to say about 2016 and something to say about 2020. It's fascinating. It really is. Yeah, thanks. I'm really glad that we did it. I get so much yeah. out of it. And I just, you know, it helps me. Um, I carry with me for many weeks after I do these, the thoughts of our panelists. And I can, you know, kind of conjure and mind them as we have all of our political talks heading towards the midterms. You know who else is? Every strategist and candidate going, oh, wait, did you hear that clip? There we go. That's actually thinking about this. Everyone, voters on both sides of the aisle also are clearly concerned about election deniers that are on the ballot. But really, the question to pose is what happens if they actually win? We're going to talk about it next. So we just watched Allison take the pulse of the people, voters in battleground states expressing concerns, well, frankly, about election deniers who are running for office and allegations of voter fraud. 
Back with me now, Scott Jennings, Sochi Hinoosa, and David Swerdlick. You know, it's interesting because there was that one comment that I think Lydia made uh, suggesting, look, the reason she is skeptical about non-election deniers now is because those same people, I mean, no one had a problem with the 2016 election. They had one with the impeachments and the election interference and with Russia, but suddenly that's all gone away. Did you think that played at all? So I think there's a qualitative difference. I understand the point. It's a fair point to raise. But in 2000, Al Gore conceded the election. In 2016, Secretary Clinton conceded the election. Yes, Democrats and Democratic supporters raised a lot of complaints. But we're now in a situation where in tw- after 2020, former President Trump hasn't conceded, has pressed an agenda of fighting these results and will never concede. And I just want to point out, I was on the 2016 election at Hillary Clinton's headquarters and working for her, and we were all devastated. We did not see it coming like most of America. There were, Hillary Clinton herself was not telling staffers, oh, let's challenge this until the end. Staffers inside the campaign weren't saying things that you hear Trump officials saying like, oh, wait a minute, there was all sorts of rampant voter fraud. Those things weren't happening. What we were talking about is how do we wrap this up? How do we ensure that there is a peaceful transition and move forward? So it is very different what it happened in the 2020 race. And to your point, what happened with Al Gore, Hillary Clinton, and what has happened for decades is people have conceded. Well, of course, and there were, well, we do know that Republicans were very critical of people like, I think it was Congressman Jamie Raskin at one point and others early on because they did take issue in the point in time of the certification process mm. in Congress. And again, they ultimately conceded the point. Is that different? Well, I mean, the candidates conceded. I grant your point. But the party at large never did. What percentage of Democrats today do you think Donald Trump won fair and square in 2016. And beyond that, even though Hillary Clinton conceded, Democrats still immediately, and there was an article before Trump was even sworn in about the plotting of his impeachment. And so a Republican would say, yes, she conceded, but the party never did. And that led to the interminable Russia investigation, the impeachments and everything they did. That, that's how a, I think an average Republican voter would argue the point. I don't know the percentage, but I would venture to say it's less than the 60 to 70 percent of Republicans know. who now still tell pollsters that they don't believe Joe Biden won. I mean, I also, I also lived through the Bush years. And I know after the 2000 election, Democrats did not believe Bush won fair and square. I know after 2004, you had people on the floor of the Congress voting not to certify, which is exactly what Republicans did after the 2020 election and why we have to update the Electoral Count Act, by the way, which I hope they do this year. So the Democrats have had some experience with not, you know, not accepting fully the results of election. Well, Alice, I want to bring you in here because one thing that is very different is even with all the concessions and the analogies being drawn and parallels, wasn't a January 6th. Um, and we also don't have judges who were saying, oh, finger on the nose. You all didn't see it. You telling me I was right. And also, Alice, on the point and thinking, um, I wonder what your thoughts are, because you didn't have judges who were saying and calling out people like the former president who recently said, look, you knew at the time that there was no real credible allegations of widespread fraud. You just wanted to delay the process. That is a difference in my mind. What did Lydia think about that? Well, I mean, you know, Lydia was sticking to her own philosophy, which is you can't have you can't raise those questions in 2016 and then have no questions for 2020. So she wasn't getting into sort of the nuance that you are. However, this has been adjudicated six ways to Sunday. The 2020 race has been. And to your other point, yes, there were people who thought that maybe the George W. Bush win 
or the Donald Trump win. Maybe they didn't win fair and square. There were certainly Democrats who felt that. But they didn't take up arms Mm. and uh, raid the Capitol looking to kill our elected officials. So I would say that it's just, you know, exponentially different from the doubts of other years. And yet, of course, that's why it's important to to go into nuance here with the panel, because we're talking about these questions and talking about it. But that's how they're feeling about the issue. But there's a big question that has not been settled, and I really want to get to it, because... There's a lot of just talk about the trajectory of Democrats not being able to retain the majority in the House or the Senate. I'm wondering, though, in that Utah race, he is, Evan McMullen, if he were to win, right, he's an independent who has right. said he is not going to caucus with the Democrats or caucus with the Republicans. And we're talking about this slim margin, this slim Democratic majority. That would really throw quite a wrench in everything, right? Right. Yeah, I mean, if he doesn't tell voters who he's going to caucus with or if he chooses not to organize, I mean, it, it would throw the potentially the chamber to some chaos. I'll just say in the past, he's portrayed himself as a conservative on some issues. His campaign is almost being fully funded by Democrats and outside Democrat groups. And but he's so, saying he won't caucus with them to guarantee that who he would know. Well, if you, were, if you were running in Utah, you'd say that, too. I mean, then when the ele- and then when the election's over, you might make I'm, I don't I don't know what he's going to do. I, I think Mike Lee's going to win. Uh, the correct strategy for Senator Lee is to portray McMullen as the Democratic candidate. He's running as an independent because you can't win a race as a Democrat in Utah. I don't know who's going to win that race. I will say this for Evan McMullen. He is a Republican, even if now he's an independent. I base that on two things. One, he ran as a Republican protest candidate with running mate Mindy Finn in 2016 against President Trump. Senator Lee acknowledges that he voted for McMullen, even though they're running against each other now, in 2016 as a protest vote. The other thing is that uh, McMullen is representing this sort of never-Trump wing of the party. I don't think you can cast him as a Democrat, even though you're right, Scott, Democrats are backing him now. Well, we will see. Remember, it was 2012 with Senator Angus King, and whether he caucused with Democrats or not, he ultimately ended up doing so. Do you all claim McMullen? I mean, you're funding him. Well, we are not we are not funding him. What I will say is he's coming to Washington, D.C., and he is as an independent. He will be a very popular person on both sides <laughs> of the aisle as they try to get stuff done with a very slim majority. But so he won't I, be popular he, with um, Steve, with uh, Joe Manchin. He wants to be the person everyone comes to. <laughs> you're right. You're right. You're right about that. <laughs> Allison. Uh, I guess Andrew Yang was right. That is a fascinating race. So many different permutations. And of course, we will continue to cover it. Okay, now to this. So Americans are struggling with rising costs, as you know, from gas pump to the grocery store. And now it's even getting more expensive at the happiest place on earth. We'll explain. Okay, we have some travel headlines for you now that could affect your holiday plans. First, visiting the most magical place on Earth just got more expensive. Disney hiking its prices this month, outpacing the annual inflation rate of 8.2%. The cost of a single-day ticket for one person to Disneyland during the busy season, like Christmas, was $164 a couple weeks ago. Now it's $179. That's an increase of 9.2%. And what if you want to park your car? and use their Genie Plus, which is like the fast track service, that's also very expensive. The new price hike for a family of four, it would be $1,086 for a single day. 
That's during the park's busy season. That's an increase of 10%. It doesn't even include buying food or souvenirs. Back with us is Andrew Yang, Alyssa Farrah Griffin, and Natasha Alford. How many of you have gone to Disneyland or Disney World? Not until later in life, though. My dad actually scrapped and saved so we could go. Is that right? And so this story is really relatable probably for a lot of middle-class families who are like, how is this even the American dream anymore? Absolutely. In fact, the the article that I read, there was a woman who had saved up money, saved up money, and she got there. And because the price had gone up, she had to actually not go for as many days. She had to go home halfway through because she hadn't saved for the price hike. And uh, you just went this year? Yes, and there was a dad wearing a T-shirt saying most expensive place on earth, and that was before the price hike. Uh, was I, it um, the happiest place on earth? Was it my, worth my kids, it? My kids had a blast. Uh, and uh, though, you know, we're, we're laughing a little bit, but the fact is right now a lot of companies, not just Disney, are raising prices at this 8 to 10% level, and what they're finding is that customers are paying it, which means that there's no disincentive for them to, to keep on doing the same thing. Other companies follow suit. The fact is inflation is nasty, persistent, it's hitting Americans uh, and just about every walk of life uh, at, at this point. It's one reason why I think the climate for Dems in this midterm has gone uh, negative the way yes, it has. Yes, but, but it's funny. What you, it's paradoxical what you say because people are still spending. Yeah, so in are. other words, and in fact, that was in this article about Disneyland and Disney World. People aren't actually canceling their trips for the holidays. So they're not seeing a dent yet in interest. That's true. And I do think it's such an American rite of passage. Yeah, we all here at the table went. I remember going many times as a kid. But it is, I think, pricing some people out of it. I think a lot of people, the barrier to entry now to go to Disney is much higher than it used to be. But for things like this, a luxury trip, there's always going to be a demand there. But to Andrew's point, I mean, looking at inflation right now, we're heading into the winter season. The average family is going to spend $900 more to heat their homes in the winter season. That is real. That is the most motivating factor for people to vote. And the fact is, Democrats control the House, the Senate, and the White House. And so it's going to be a referendum on the party in power, is my guess. Okay, speaking of luxury, luxury bus. Is that an oxymoron? There is a new service that is trying to get people, instead of having to fly... Because, you know, that comes with all sorts of headaches, as we know, and there can be cancellations, et cetera, et cetera, and the price. There are, is now a bus service, and you can, it's a luxury bus. You have a full sleeper. Nap away. Nap yes. away is <laughs> what it's no called. It's as called, long as the seats recline. Turn on that podcast. I mean, the airline <laughs> prices have also outpaced inflation, right? And so it's expensive. Some people are just swallowing it. But yeah, get on the bus, put your blanket, you know, open up a book, listen to Audible. Um, I it's think, 11 hours. Yeah. I'm just, I just let me tell you, yeah. you better have a long oh, yeah. podcast. <laughs> it's 11 hours. So there's what Nap Away is doing is from Washington, D.C. to Nashville. So it's an overnight trip, 11 hours. And you have a full, you know, lay, bed that you can lay down on, and you can. They say you can, you know, you can sleep for eight hours. That's better than the bus I took in college, the mega bus. <laughs> no shades of mega bus, but just like a few dollars and good, not, not comfortable. Good branding though to call it nap away. Like they're branding around sleeping on it. Any like I look for an opportunity to nap at any time. Absolutely. So that's this the only you. appealing part of this. This I, is your chance. You know, I. I See, everything as, would my wife go for that? My wife would totally go for a nap away bus trip. She would? <laughs> she, she genuinely would. That's your next family trip you'll be taking. Yeah, this I'll, kind I'll of reminds me, sorry, this reminds me of when Lyft a couple years ago basically announced that they're adding another thing in addition to Lyft Pool, where it's basically meet at this corner and we'll pick up 10 people. You're like, you're invent- reinventing the bus. We all knew <laughs> they took the bus growing up. This isn't new. Uh, hey, adjust for the times. Um, okay, very quickly, last story is... 
Um, American Airlines announcing that they're getting rid of their first class service on international flights. They're just going to have business class. I don't even think I know the difference. What's the difference? What's been the difference between first class and business class? You get like an extra Sunday on first class, in which case I might not be in favor of this. You probably get to stretch out more, right? It's more of a bed experience, like the bus, like the bus. <laughs> yes. I fly business and to an international, and that feels like a luxury. And I've always wondered, those seats just a little ahead of me, yeah. what's so what different are they about getting yeah. up there? Clearly, it's not worth yeah, it. Yeah, clearly. Yeah, no, they've decided that people don't want to pay anymore for first class. They, but they do want to pay for business class because, you know, you want the free booze. <laughs> um, but they don't want to pay for it. I just think it's a sign of the times. Very interesting that first class is going away. If it's the same seat, not worth it. <laughs> if it's a different seat, physically larger, you can stretch out. If you can sleep and drink, which you can do in business class, I think that covers the essentials of international travel. For sure. Yeah. For sure. <laughs> and I'm always the dummy who's like, yeah, what kind of wine do you have? Like the pros don't drink on the international flights. They go right to sleep. They put on the eye mask and they're fresh for the morning. I'm like, tell me more about your wine selection. <laughs> oh, boy. Um, guys, thank you very much. Laura, thoughts on any of these travel headlines? Oh, my God. First of all, I have flown to China in the economy section because I'm five foot three and I can sleep anywhere. So that was fine for me. But let me tell you something. I will be really satisfied when they learn to, I guess, you know, load the plane and board it from the back to the front as opposed to the crazy thing that everyone always does to have you pick and choose. I'm over it. I'm over the whole travel. <laughs> and I would be over at Disney at more than $1,000 a day. You've got to be kidding me. Kids don't even remember half the time. Okay, well, I, I have a nap away bus for you, just for you. That I'm sounds not, like how I, you'll be traveling. Look, when my husband and I were long distance, we were on that bus from New York to D.C. It was great. I loved it. I had a little handheld DVR player, DVD player. That's how long ago that was. So That's I'm romantic. It. It, it, no. <laughs> but, you know, what? it turned out okay. Yes, it did. There you go. Now the question is, are the price hikes on airfare and Disney tickets putting a dent in your travel plans out there? Well, let us know. That anything else you want to say to Allison and me? Well, not anything else you want to say. Mm. Just, you know, within reason, tweet us at the Laura Coates and at Allison Camerata. Use that hashtag, CNN Sound Off. For five weeks, people in Iran, many of them women, have taken to the streets in protest. This after the death of 22-year-old Masa Amini in the custody of Iran's morality police. She was arrested for allegedly wearing her head covering or her job improperly. The anger has only grown since then. Here you can see a woman staging a silent protest, eating in a restaurant without her hijab. All of these, uh, Laura, are just just acts of bravery, you know, right mm. in front of all in front of the world. So there are these demonstrations, as you can see, that are spilling into the streets with Iranians clashing with Iran's notoriously ruthless security forces. Iran's state news outlet says more than 1000 people have been arrested. And Amnesty International says between September 20th and September 30th, at least 23 children were killed by Iranian security forces because of all of this. CNN has been unable to independently verify that death toll. But again, the bravery of people knowing that they're risking their lives to make this point has been remarkable for the world to watch. It is, and I I really hope that people continue to lean in. You know, here in the States, we are talking about the agency and autonomy over a woman's body, and we're talking about it in a nuanced way. And and we have seen protests and people vehemently opposed to 
any notion that someone would control the rights of a woman. And then you think about, relatively speaking, compared to places like Iran and what they are going through. And this is the these are teenage girls and young women in particular, Allison, who are leading the charge, who want a different life and better future. And it's just the idea of a 10-day period, that many children alone, it's unbelievable. Yeah, and then there's, of course, the rock climber who's gotten so much attention. Yes. I believe her name is Elnaz Rakabi. She mm-hmm. didn't wear the hijab when she was competing in South yeah. Korea. She now is back, I think, home in Iran. She has had to say that it was an accident. She was unexpectedly called to compete, didn't realize that she was supposed to be wearing the hijab. I mean, who knows if that's true. But again, all these public declaration, uh, public, I guess, um, demonstrations of this protest and often with um, deadly consequences. It's unbelievable. And did you see there was a, a conversation surrounding that they were reaching out to different doctors around the world on social media because people are getting very seriously injured and they don't want to go to the hospitals there because they might actually be arrested or charged in some way and meet a similar fate. So they're reaching out and using all these networks and trying to get virtual treatment on these extraordinary injuries. It's really it's unbelievable. I hope we continue to follow this story and the world continues to lean in. Yeah, we will. Uh, now to another really important international story. Britain's prime minister resigning after just six chaotic weeks amid an open revolt within her own party. And of course, it begs the question, what should political parties do in this country if the leaders are doing something they don't want them to do or are wildly unpopular? We have dueling panels coming up to weigh in. So, Laura, what happens when a country's leader makes a really bad, unpopular decision? Well, apparently that depends on the country. (laughs) Because British Prime Minister Liz Truss resigning today after only six weeks in office. Mm -hmm. Her economic plan plunged Britain into turmoil and her own conservative party turned against her. Well, you know, in this country, the voters decide, but the candidates are nominated by the two major parties, as you all know, which, of course, limits the leadership choices. But tonight... Our dueling panels are back, Allison, taking on this very topic of how do you solve a problem like, well, unpopular leaders. Okay, so we have to set the clock for four minutes. We each are going to get four minutes, and we're going to see which panel can come up with the spicier answers about this. This is not going to be like that that show where any horrible ending comes to the end, right? There's no there's no there's no death coming. Okay, no, there's great. a slime. There's a huge bucket of slime that will oh. fall on one of our oh, heads no. if we don't deliver in the panel. That is true. America, which person do you think will be more upset if her hair gets up messed mm-hmm. up? All right, let's begin with my panel here in Washington, D.C. Will Jawando is a former official in the Obama White House. Susan Glasser is CNN's global affairs analyst, and Miles Taylor was chief of staff former Homeland Security, Kirsten Nielsen. Okay, guys, here's the clock up there. So tell me, the idea here that we have unpopular leaders is just foreign to us out of the gate, right? We don't have that problem here, right? <laughs> Everyone loves our leadership. Your eyes are coming out of your head now. What's your sock? I worked for the most popular president in the United States. Honestly, most popular there's ever been. Uh, yeah, yeah, we know about this. Yes, we know about unpopular leaders. We know it all too well, but but why is this the case? Why do we have unpopular leaders winning? I, I'm just going to go straight in. It's because of how hyperpolarized our electorate has gotten, and both parties have tried to lock in their gains, gerrymandered the hell out of the map, and now it's just harder and harder for non-extremists 
to win elections. So the, the, the pitchfork fringes are making decisions for 90% of America. 10% is making decisions for 90%. The result is that the sensible center has been left out. And our democracy is increasingly becoming uncompetitive. That's so is England a, a blueprint? I mean, it, we've left it, so we know it's not what we wanted for our government. But the idea of getting rid of our leaders in that fashion, we tried the impeachments, doesn't work. Well, uh, you know, if it was our system, we might have more leaders than uh, Great Britain has had. And they certainly have been cycling through them pretty rapidly. The problem is in all these countries, they're cycling right back to the same old unpopular leaders. They could end up right with Boris Johnson all over again. In Israel, they could end up with Benjamin Netanyahu all over again. We could end up with Donald Trump all over again. Yeah. Yeah. So what's amazing is that they're unpopular but that somehow doesn't knock them out of politics, whether it's in our system or in a parliamentary system. The popularity, though, is subjective, right? Because yeah. Donald Trump, for example, he had millions of votes. He's not universally unpopular. But yeah. he was very unpopular. Let's be so, clear. He was Biden, the most unpopular president in the history of Gallup polling. He's the mm-hmm. only president in the United States who was never supported by a majority of this country for a single day when he was in office. Well, you know, I, I think there's... There's this popularity. It's like a painful popularity, I, I would say. Like, if you think where it comes from across all these leaders, particularly, I would say, I don't think it's, a, it's an equivalent on the left or the right, by the way. I just say that. But on the far right in particular, you have people that are peddling fear and division, appealing to this kind of populist moment of wealth inequality, of people suffering, of changing economies, of factory jobs leaving. And I think that unfortunately, is part of this mix. I mean, I don't I think if you had less inequality, you'd have less extreme, unpopular, popular, painful leaders. You call it the pitchfork fringes. I wonder, you know, in in jolly old England, they are a little bit more fluid at their parties. They tend to abandon the parties more frequently than we do here in, in the United States of America. Well, they'll be a little bit more policy and position oriented. Is that the future? We have a lot of red, blue, purple states popping up and thinking about it. Is that the real way to approach this? Look, I think right now, and I'm very biased in this regard, I think right now is probably the most viable moment for third parties in American history. It's why Andrew Yang and I went and founded the Forward Party, is because we see right now the electorate, a sea change in the electorate. 50% of Americans for the first time in U.S. history, and since we've had polling on this, say they're now political independents. They're not Democrats or Republicans. 25% say they're Democrats. 25% say they're Republicans. And even of those Democrats and Republicans, two-thirds say if there was a third party, they would vote for it. There's Last been a change. Last word, Susan. You know, I like to say that it's all driven by policy, but I feel like the last few years in American politics have reinforced that it's actually a team sport mm. uh, and that it's much less about policy than we like to think. Policy is not the reason that Donald Trump became the leader of the Republican Party. Fascinating. And look at the timing. Allison, I'm going to hand it back to you and try to top that. I don't know if you can do it. Well, how's, how's New York looking? Well, we're and worried. The ding. We're worried here because we feel like the Trump impression <laughs> might have given you guys the advantage. OK, so we're going to see if out. anyone here has an impression that they're going to bust out like Miles did. OK, so set the clock, please, for four minutes. 
Oh, okay. They, they said, okay. oh, don't say it. I have to introduce my panel. My panel here is John Miller, CNN's chief law enforcement and intelligence analyst. Jim Walden is a former federal prosecutor and journalist. Mara Escampo is here as well. Oh my gosh, I'm running out of time. I'm burning daylight. Okay, Mara, we have uh, presidents who make bad, unpopular decisions. Why can't we oust them? I would like to start by saying I do a very good British impression that perhaps could counter what we just heard, but I'm going to leave that out of this conversation. This. So, you know, the systems are structurally very different. So it's not necessarily necessarily apples to apples. But there is a lot that we can compare and take from what we've seen here. You know, I think the big thing is, and we, we have heard this mentioned, is this extreme entrenched polarization. You know, Liz Truss's undoing was that she lost the support of her party. But what we've seen here in this country is that the polarization is so entrenched that you take something like January 6th, where even those who were eyewitnesses to what took place did not demand accountability and tell the truth about what happened because the consequences would be too severe. As we saw with Liz Cheney, you see the same thing with voters. The polarization is so deep. You remember Donald Trump saying he could shoot someone on Fifth Avenue and not lose support. His support never went below 35 percent. Trusses was 10 percent last yes, week. That's one of the mind blowing things, Jim. Their uh, own party, her own party decided that they didn't like what their, the decision they had made. Can you imagine that happening here? I can't imagine it. But if you think about everyone's talking about uh, the polarization, why are we there? We're there for two reasons and two reasons alone, because the Supreme Court allowed too much money in politics and because it's not a crime to use disinformation to win an election. If you lie or give misleading information in lots of different contexts, we call that fraud. But you can do it in an election and it's masked as First Amendment speech. You add that to social media and then incredible amounts of money in politics. That's why there's tribalization. So you want an idea? Yes. Let's solve those problems. Okay, I like that. Um, you know how we've been solving problems, John? If if uh, somebody makes a decision that we don't like, uh, we have an insurrection on the Capitol. That's what has recently we've decided as Americans, that's how we're going to fix the political system. Which is the one thing that we and the rest of the world looking towards us thought could never happen here, um, at least since the original. So, I mean, I think if you look at the politics of it, um, we have seen in our generation that every president is an answer to the last. You know, if, if uh, Bush was an answer to Clinton and Obama was an answer to Bush and Trump was an overreaction to Obama um, and Biden is a, could we just have somebody who like operates like a normal politician for 10 minutes while we sort this out? We're seeing that. But as Jim pointed out, in the background, you have two factors uh, that's, that's really skewing our ability to get leaders, which is one, years of gerrymandering of, yeah. of congressional districts and elections where you have literally taken a, a country that's divided it and, and sorted those divisions out so that they are very stark. Um, and the social media factor, yes, uh, which Mara pointed out, which is uh, truth, not a, not a requirement, um, constant 24-7, and the conversation has become very damaged and skewed. And if I could just say, to build on John's point, because I think it's the right one, we talk about gerrymandering, it's really election rigging. That's all it is. And it's not one party. The Democrats did it in New York, and there were two court cases to overturn the maps. Mm. It's happening all over the country. We're turning into an election country of cheats. And also, Mara, one last thing. We do have an impeachment process, but we never remove anyone. 
after it. We have exhaustive impeachments, but nobody gets removed. Well, removal and changing leadership in the UK is, is much different because it's a different process. But lickety split. Lickety split. It's, it's much different. We've seen that happen now twice in the last, what, okay. two, three years? That's it. The bell signals that were done. Okay, uh, Laura, thoughts? For whom the bell tolled. Sorry, <laughs> right now. You guys were good. I was intrigued the entire time. I will say, Mara, I do want to see the impersonation. I got to tell you. Can you give us? Can you just lay a, yes, lay a yes. few I do want to have it. Hold on, Laura. Sure because I won it. a contest when I was 13 years old. It was a Ooh, British I'm, accent I'm contest. Okay, go ahead. I'm setting the bar very high. I would like a spot of tea, please. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Well done. Well done. I would like to know. I would like to know where this contest was, and I would like to have. It was at my summer camp. At your summer camp. I mean, well, that's uh, there's no higher accolade. I feel that is very well done, Mara. Thank you. Summer camp to CNN. I'm here for it all day long. And up next, there's a really interesting conversation we're going to have here. And the question, Allison, here it is: Are American men in crisis? Apparently, more and more men and boys are struggling at school at work and life. So is there a solution that doesn't come at the expense of women? We'll, we'll find one. Next. We'll, we'll find it. <laughs> well, Americans have plenty of issues to worry about, and we talk a lot about issues facing Americans, frankly, of all demographics. But our next guest says, don't forget about the boys and the men. More and more men and boys are struggling at school, at work, and in life. Men are dropping out of the labor force in historic numbers, frankly, and they're less likely to graduate from high school and college. They're much more likely to have fewer strong friendships today than even 30 years ago. And men account for two-thirds of so-called deaths of despair, dying of suicide and drug overdoses. We're back now with Will Jawando and Susan Glasser, and joining us to help figure all of this out, Richard Reeves. He's a senior fellow at the Brooklyn's Institution and author of the new book of Boys and Men, Why the Modern Male is Struggling, Why It Matters, and What to Do About It. Richard, I'm really glad you're here. Um, I want to get one thing straight. Before you came on, we had a British impersonation. We sure. apologize for that. Yeah, I, I think the apology will be accepted in due course, mm-hmm. a century or two, but this is my <laughs> impersonation of a British person. And so I, I, would, I would rank your previous guests as maybe a seven out of ten. But this is a 10 out of 10 British accent. Well, I'm here for it, and I welcome you here. And I also welcome this book because I'm a mother of a little boy, and I often think about, I mean, my son will say things like, you know, Mommy, because he's only nine years old, why so much girl power? What's that about? And I kind of think to myself, wow, in the interest of trying to really empower and embolden our young girls, which I really want to do, I often wonder as a mom, is there something leaving him behind in his young mind, not understanding the whys? We have this really powerful new script for girls and women now, which is a very different one to the one we had even a generation ago, which is about empowerment, education, economic independence. And so we've handed this new, very empowering script to girls and women. And like you, I'm all for that. But what's the new script for men? We've also torn up the old script for men, which was about traditional breadwinning and so on. That's also gone. But, but I, we haven't replaced that with a new script for masculinity. And that creates a dangerous vacuum in our culture. We have to create space, I think, to take seriously the real problems of boys and men, which you've just alluded to, and continue to focus on the remaining problems of girls and women. We can think two thoughts at once, and we can worry about two groups at the same time. 
And I'm very troubled right now that our mainstream discourse isn't taking some of these problems of boys and men seriously enough. So what are some of those problems? I note that the idea of walking and chewing gum at the same time, we are in Washington, D.C. That might be very antithetical to where we are at times. (laughs) But I do wonder, what are those struggles? Because there may be many who look at this and say... Really? Um, you've had, you know, centuries of being able to be maybe dominant by, by design. Mm-hmm. So why should people care and what are those issues? Well, I think, first of all, it's happened so quickly that we've seen this, the rec- economic rise of women, which we, we have obviously said is a great thing. But what that does is it means it t- it's very hard for us to catch up with what's happening on the ground. And so if we look at college graduation rates, for example, there's now a bigger gender gap in the percentage of women getting college degrees compared to men than there was in 1972 when Title IX was passed, just the other way around. So 50 years ago, men were 13 percentage points more likely to get a college degree. Now women are 15 percentage points more likely to get a college degree. That's a very rapid change. And I think, honestly, it's quite hard for all of us to catch up with that. And then, as you've mentioned, the men who are in the labor market, many working class men and black men especially have been hit very hard by economic trends. So most American men today earn less than most American men did in 1979. That's a very important economic fact that we need to take seriously as we think about what's happening in our culture. And it leads to all kinds of other problems in health, as you've referred to, three times higher suicide rates, in the family where we see a rise in fatherlessness and men not being able to be in touch with their children. So it has these social, and I I would add political consequences, Mm -hmm. if we fail to take these problems seriously. I mean, I think in your book, Will, about your seven fathers is the book, right? And, And just thinking about... Um, how you view this and the notion of boys and men being left behind really in the pursuit of equality, it sounds like. Yeah, it, it's, uh, it's really an unfortunate confirmation. You know, I worked in the Obama White House on My Brother's Keeper. And at the time, there was a big debate of, should we even be having a program focused on black men and boys? And I think this data bears out, absolutely we should. And that doesn't mean it's to the exclusion of anyone else. But if you dig into the data in the biological science of Brain development, for example. Mm-hmm. Boys and girls have different levels in times of brain development. Boys being a little slower as far as certain parts of their cortex that help them make decision making and all those things. And so our strategies should respond to that. But to the point, uh, and I think it's a great point, this change has happened so quickly. Um, and it's been a good response to toxic masculinity. Mm-hmm. But what is what does it mean? So in, in my, you know, in my seven black fathers, I talk about the expansion of the definition of fathers, these men who weren't all my biological fathers that stepped in and helped keep me on track. I think we have to figure out better solutions, mentoring programs, uh, different supports that address these unique needs of boys and men across the demographics while we still address girls and women. Susan, I wonder, can this all happen without coming at the expense of gains for women. Well, I think that's the great fear is that we have tended to see these things in zero sum uh, politics. And of course, at this moment of incredible dysfunction, uh, right? And you've often, you have a long history going back uh, decades really to, you know, the idea of pitting uh, those seeking uh, better equity in our society against each other rather than understanding, you know, where they're both affected by common crises and where they're not. And I think that's something like you, I'm the mother of a son, is something that we all have to be invested in. And I think that part of the problem is we have, to your point, Richard, this toxic politics. And let's be honest, like we've just been coming through, uh, you know, a number of years in our society where we have had 
acting out of literally the most toxic form, a caricature of masculinity uh, in our national politics. What kind of message does that send to boys? Uh, Talk about, you know, we used to talk about old-fashioned values, right? That was one party that used to say it was in favor of that. Well, you know, when did we teach our sons to be sore losers? I mean, come on. I completely agree. I think what's happened, absent a better conversation about this and polarization, there's been almost a celebration of an adolescent form of masculinity, a kind of acting out, a sort of middle finger kind of masculinity. And by the way, my son went to an all-boys school and I spoke with a a head of school about this and he said you would not imagine what it was like to be the head of an all-boys school during the Trump presidency. It was a disaster for boys. I can imagine in this book is of boys and men. It's really fascinating. Allison, I want to bring you in here in your panel as well because... It's a fascinating conversation just given this dynamic at play in politics and our sociological world as well. What are you thinking? I mean, I think it's a really important conversation and it's really troubling. So let's bring in our panel. We have John Miller with us, Jim Walden and Catherine Rampellis joining us. Um, so, John, this is heartbreaking. I think it's heartbreaking to hear all the ways in which men and boys are struggling in terms of school, in terms of the workforce, in terms of their earnings, in terms of their identity, in terms of they're more susceptible to depression, I think, and substance abuse. I've seen this in my own, with my own friends, my guy friends, um, struggle more than my girlfriends, frankly. And so what's going on? Well, I think a few things are going on. I think Richard's work on this has been brilliant, though. When you look at how many men have departed from the workforce um, as compared to women, but also they departed to where? Um, not just unemployment, but um, higher death rates, higher suicide rates, um, but interestingly, higher rates of addiction to things like opioids. Um, you're seeing... Changes in men's place in society. Uh, If you take a look at the jobs of my father or his father's father's time, uh, there's not that many coal mines. If you take a look at the auto business, um, how much of an assembly line is robotic now? How many men have been displaced as women have been entering the workforce? And there's fewer manual labor jobs, which obviously men filled. So there's, there's that. But, you know, there are other dynamics which we have to think about, which is, how many men got by um, in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s um, as mid-level executives who were only vaguely competent, who were great buying a beer, you know, uh, after work at the bar and terrific at their golf game with the boss, who have been replaced by um, a growing pool of women executives and managers um, who are just better at the job? And, and you know, those are the, the X factors. Yes, and that raises, I think, two important questions, Jim, which is basically everybody needs a purpose, right? And men, and, and an identity. And so obviously that is being challenged for men. At the same time, are men just sort of naturally less adaptable? I mean, culture has changed. Things have changed. Women have had to adapt. Is there something that men are not adapting to? Well, I think there are a lot of men that aren't adapting, but I, I think that I take a little bit of a hard-hearted approach to this. I mean, to, the, uh, to uh, Laura's point, Women have been discriminated against in our society and in our world for forever. And they, there is still major discrepancy between women's pay and men's pay. And so, it, I, I mean, obviously, on the mental health stuff, that needs to be seri- it's taken seriously. And Richard's points on and some of his proposals are really interesting. But when it comes to the, the, the economics and the education, I think we should be celebrating the fact that women are making strides. Yeah, but why does it have to come at the cost of men? I mean, like, like Susan was saying, why does it have to be a zero-sum game? Well, what, uh, from the data that I read, a lot of it was men staying where they were and women improving. And that, to me, sounds like something to be celebrated, not something to be bemoaned. Catherine, tell us. 
I think a lot of this has to do with sort of a post-industrialized economy. So as we've been talking about, these traditionally masculine, male-dominated industries like manufacturing, like coal mining, have declined. And meanwhile, the industries that have shown among the biggest growth are sort of traditionally pink-collar industries, nursing, other kinds of healthcare jobs, services. Um, and for whatever reason, men have not adapted to that. These are also in, these are also jobs often that require more post-secondary schooling, by the way. You know, you need a degree to get to become a nurse, for example. You didn't necessarily need one in decades past to work in a in an auto plant. Um, so you know the challenge is even though there are more men who have entered nursing, it's still a very female-dominated field. These are still very good jobs. They're still very much in demand. How do you encourage a different vision of what it means to have a sufficiently manly job so that there isn't sort of this aversion to positions that are are increasing, that are that pay well, and that men don't seem to want to go into? Or does it require a different kind of socialization of boys, for example, so that they have the greater um, emotional and social skills that are valuable in many of these jobs, I would say, of the future, but frankly, of the present? So a lot of it has to do with these economic forces that have changed for whatever reason, men, excuse, excuse me, have become more demoralized rather than adapting. But I don't know that I put the blame on the men themselves necessarily so much as the role models that they have. And what we are teaching boys um, is a laudable, you know, strong man ideal to aspire to. Yeah, I mean, I guess I, I don't know if we're still teaching boys that. I mean, I think that obviously our culture has changed, but I mean, that was traditional. So what's the solution? If we all agree that toxic masculinity is bad or uncomfortable, I don't know a lot of toxically masculine guys. I mean, we all can spot them in a crowd, you know, like at every party, there's that guy. But what are we replacing it with? And I think that, you know, I I read somewhere that like honorable masculinity, like we do need, we need to give them something. We need to give them a role. And what's the solution? Well, I, uh, I'm going to have to talk to Don Draper about that and say, like, where do we get from where you started this in terms of pop culture? Uh, but I mean, I, I had COVID. My nurse, you know, my first nurse was a man. Um, I credit him with saving my life. And he wasn't what I was expecting. Um, I worked in the boys club. You the sure NYPD. did. You sure did. And, you know, my last commissioner was uh, a woman, a woman of color. Um, which the place um, had some adjusting to do towards. And did they adjust? Sure they did. Um, and, you know, I, I think these shifts are a big learning curve. I think the, the neurological piece needs study uh, because we have to figure out what that really is. And Richard, Richard teed it up. Yes, and so I think that he will tell us what the solutions are. Laura, uh, what is the answer here? Well, it's so fascinating. I think, you know, let's bring in the author of the book we're talking about. What a really thought-provoking topic. We, you and I were talking about this, Allison, but, I mean, hearing all the responses and the way people are thinking about it, I mean, it's a little bit mind-blowing. Richard, what is the big takeaway that you want people to best understand from your incredible book? The key thing, I just want to underline what Susan said, which is that it's not a zero-sum game, even though the politicians try to pretend that it is, is that we can continue to work on behalf of women and girls in the many areas of society where that's true, but also these troubling areas in health, education, employment, where boys and men are really struggling. Because unless, unless we take those problems seriously and we take responsible action in the education system, in the labor market, then you can be sure that other people will benefit from the problems that boys and men have. So as a culture, as parents, as school teachers, 
let's take this problem seriously because if responsible people don't address these problems squarely in the face, then irresponsible people will exploit them. And I think that's the point we're at now. We can have a grown-up conversation about the problems facing boys and men without abandoning any of our commitment to women and girls. Really fascinating. Yeah, it is. Thanks so much for all the research and for the great conversation, you guys. That was really... Really thought-provoking, as Laura said. So what do you all think about the issues affecting men and boys today? That and anything else you want to say to Laura and me, tweet us at the Laura Coates and at Allison Camerata. Laura, have you taken a look at this controversial mural? Have you seen this? Okay, let's put it up. I want to put it up on the screen because this is happening at a Michigan middle school. And when I look at this mural, I mean, I see Satanism. I see witchcraft. Just kidding. That's what other, that's what some parents at this middle school see. This, well, a sophomore in high school painted this lovely mural with animals and hearts and all of this nice imagery, and the parents uh, believe that she sort of put in hidden, um, coded messages that read to them as um, gay pride and bisexual signaling and witchcraft and Satanism. And by the way, she won an art contest, right? It wasn't mm-hmm. that she just, she just go to a playground and just start painting. She, she put it up there after winning something, and she says, quote, she put up her artwork up there to make people feel welcome. That's not what I'm a part of. That's not what I'm trying to put out there. It's, it's pretty unbelievable to think of the reaction that she's gotten. I mean, she left, I think, a, a board meeting in tears because of how it was being received. And it, it really just goes to show you, Allison, I think in so many respects, that it, it's almost like people are looking for an issue and looking to think that everyone is somehow trying to indoctrinate children or that every symbol is supposed to be nefarious and problematic. This is an example of that. I believe that people are going too far pushing this notion that our children are exposed to secret signals. Either we're living in a crazy conspiratorial time or she did do something subversive and put in some sort of like Easter eggs like Taylor Swift does in her songs. And maybe she did sneak in some symbols, but I don't think that it's because she's into witchcraft and Satanism. I mean, she was trying to, you know, paint this very like inclusive, welcoming um, mural. And the fact that the parents ganged up on her at that school meeting and left her in tears and she Mm. and she was you know, quivering, said, I was just trying to make people feel welcome. It's gone crazy. I mean, I don't see the symbolism they're talking about. Be it, I mean, I'm just not seeing it. But I will say the school did decide to leave up this mural, Allison, but she's going to make some small changes because apparently there was an original pitch from the student that they had pre-cleared, and they're going to now change it to make it look exactly like that original pitch. But that does also mean, Allison that the LGBTQ flags on the shirts, which is one people had a problem with at one point, will stay as they were in the original. I mean, it's pretty... Here's the part that she has to take it. I don't know if you can see it because it's sort of small, but on the, yeah. on the left side of it, there's the Hamza hand there, which is, you know, uh, the hand of God in some Middle Eastern uh, cultures. And so they don't like that she put that in there. So that has to go. And then mm. there's a mask somewhere. And I couldn't find it. I've studied this mural before we came on. 
there's a mask somewhere in there that they think means Satanism or something, and that that has to go. But, you know, if you can't find it, I'm not sure the message is really getting... Yeah, it's not having the desired effect if we can't find it. I mean, it. this kind of reminds me, remember those old highlights magazines? You had the hidden figures and trying to find things yes. in there. That's what I have to do tonight. I mean, I'll ask my kids about it. I'm not afraid to expose them to art, everyone. Yeah, very good. Listen, the GOP also has been claim- pushing a claim that cities with progressive prosecutors have higher crime rates, Allison, which is actually not true. We'll tell you what's really going on with crime next. As you know, Republicans are hammering Democrats on crime, claiming that liberal-led cities are unsafe. And they're going after everything from sanctuary cities to progressive prosecutors to cashless bail initiatives. But our friend Ron Brownstein has a new article in The Atlantic titled, What's Really Going On with the Crime Rate? And he writes about this new study from researchers at the liberal think tank, the Center for American Progress, quote, Countering conventional wisdom, the study found that homicides over recent years increased less rapidly in cities with progressive prosecutors than in those with more traditional district attorneys. It also found no meaningful differences between cities with progressive or traditional DAs in the trends for larceny and robbery, end quote. That reinforces another study earlier this year from centrist Democratic group Third Way that found the murder rate was higher in 2020 in states that voted for Donald Trump. Back with me now to discuss, we have John Miller, Mara Escampo, and Catherine Rampell. Um, wait a minute, John. I thought that uh, progressive cities like San Francisco and Portland, Oregon were, you know, hotbeds of crime right now. Uh, I, that's not true? I think it is true. I mean, if you look at the places with, that have the most progressive district attorneys, uh, Philadelphia, Chicago, Los Angeles, I mean, violence is off the hook in Philadelphia, off the hook in Chicago. But I also think that the studies are missing something. One, when you go by percentages and we don't see the raw numbers, you can't tell if crime was 68% higher in the city because they had 10 murders that year and it went up by a small number. Um, do you, are you hundreds. saying that you reject the premise, that you do think that places with progressive leaders are more crime infested? Or, I mean, because that, that other study about the red states where Donald Trump won, I think we have a CDC map. So there of the 10 states uh, where the... Crime, no, where murder is the highest are red states where there's not progressives in charge. So I think that if you look at who, the, who did the studies and how the studies were done, they had the answer before they did the study. I think when you have to put oh, in yeah, all those... that one was the CDC about the map of the highest murder rates. Okay, but I think if you look at, um, you know, you have places that have progressive district attorneys. In New York, we have five district attorneys. Some of them you would say are progressive. Some of them you would say less so. But 35 states implemented criminal justice reform laws that took DAs who would have otherwise been not progressive and made them progressive because they were literally legislated out of entire categories of crimes that would have been prosecuted. So I think the studies needed to be broader. Um, I think... I think Brownstein's writing about the studies uh, was smarter than the studies because he quoted people outside the studies who said much more research needs to be done in this. Uh-huh. Yeah, well, I do think the one thing it does speak to is the difference between the narrative and what the facts support. And, you know, the narrative is that these progressive policies are, are, are so overly woke that they're destroying cities. But when you drill down and you actually look at what a lot of them are saying, I don't think most people would have a problem with them. You know, you're talking about things like trying to reduce the number of juveniles being tried as adults, prosecuting police officers for misconduct, trying to reduce cash bail. And cash bail specifically 
specifically is a very big problem because it's estimated that up to 70% of people who are currently in county and city jails are just there because they cannot afford bail. They have not yet been convicted of anything, and 43% of those people are black. So I think when you drill down and you look at what's actually being proposed and, and enacted in these cities, they're not really things that a lot of people would have problems with. And so because crime is so multilayered, I think that saying, well, it's these progressive policies, of course, it's a very simple sell, and it's a very simple thing for voters to buy because it's easy to say someone's soft on crime. That's why you're seeing all this crime. But I think it's much more nuanced than that. But I also think the narrative, at least, um, Catherine, is that things aren't being prosecuted. So there are shoplifting things. There's obviously a homelessness problem in San Francisco. Not that that's a crime, but that there's a feeling of lawlessness. There's a feeling that police are have backed off or they're not getting the support or things aren't being prosecuted. I think it probably has become a lot more difficult to become a police officer in the past couple of years for good reasons and bad. You know, I mean, there are some things that should be more they should pause before doing like shooting an unarmed person, for example. And, uh, you know, there's probably also somewhat of a chilling effect on things that would be helpful for them to 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 engage in. Um, but, you know, I think part of the issue here is that this is a lot more about perception and kind of vibes. And it is true, crime has gone up across the country. Um, but if you look at the cities that have the highest murder rates, you know, they're, it's not San Francisco, it's not New York, it's like St. Louis, you know? Um, uh, a number of states in the South have city, red states have cities. They might have a, you know, a Democratic mayor, but I wouldn't necessarily call them like a bastion of bleeding heart liberalism, you know, progressive, um, you know, let's let out all the criminals kind of mindset. Uh, but, you know, there are a lot of parts of the country that I think are perceived as being the more dangerous areas, but that doesn't actually match what the crime stats show. It's not that we want more crime in any of these places, right? I mean, that's not good. But I think a lot of this is really about perception. Um, and, and it's about, to some extent, scaring the people who don't live in those places rather than, the, than convincing the people who do. I mean, like, I hear from friends of mine who, I live in Manhattan, I hear from friends of mine who live in Westchester who ask me, like, isn't it really scary to be in New York right now? I'm like, no, there are more homeless people, but no, I, I, I'm not terrified walking around. There are parts of the country I would be probably scared yeah. about. But I think when you get right down to the numbers in 2016, 2017, 2018, New York City had the lowest crime in recorded history. We had under 300 murders in a city of 8.6 million. Yeah. Uh, we had, and then know, what changed? Under what what changed was we had sweeping criminal justice reform mm -hmm. um, that was meant to address a number of the problems we brought up, which had already been solved here. We had the lowest incarceration rate. We had the lowest number so of arrests. So you're saying they overcorrected? They overcorrected, and the physics of politics has always been: for every action, there's an op equal but opposite overreaction, and now. You know, we go through a year where murders are up 38 percent and shootings are double and people are scratching their head as academics pretending to wonder how this happened. That's how it happened. Laura, I know you've been listening to this conversation. It's fascinating. I mean, the idea here, perception being king, one of the things that creates that perception, of course, are the narratives. And people hear things over and over again. They believe that there is some iota of truth and then they run with it. Speaking of inertia, I mean, things that are in motion will stay in motion until they are disrupted. And I wonder if the truth We'll do just that. It's really fascinating. Great conversation. It's also time for all of you to sound off. We'll read your tweets next. All right, it's social time. What do we have from the world of Twitter? Well, let's read a few. 
One comes from um, James Abbott. It says, if we had a vote of no confidence here in the U.S., Biden would be a former president. Okay, here's one on democracy, quoting President Reagan. Freedom is never more than one generation away from extinction. Yes, it is. Here's one on the Disney hikes, Allison. It says, why is it every few years when I can finally afford to go to Disney, Disney says, nope. Here's one I like. Disney, no thanks. Heading to Italy with the fam in December. Can I go with you guys? Oh, we want to go too, actually. I'll come with you as well. Well, you know where to find all of us. It's not in Italy. It's right here. And we are Allison Kimrod and V. Lara Coates, everyone. Thank you for watching. Our coverage continues now. Quality sleep is essential. And that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.